This is Matthew Margeson, and you're listening to Monday Morning Critic Podcast. Feeling empty. I could hear the whole tune in my head. It was all there, I could see all the notes, and I just had to get it out. It's a little bit funny. This feeling inside. What did you say your name was again? My name is Reggie! Reginald Dwight. Reginald. That's my granddad's name. So how does a fat boy from nowhere get to be a soul man? Gotta kill the person you were born to be in order to become the person you wanna be. I'm thinking of changing my name to Elton. But that's my name. Yeah, I know. Be the best-selling artist in America if you desire. Who's trying to do something bold? Why are you still something flashy? Can you even play the piano in those? Let them know who you are. And just don't kill yourself with drugs. So how does it feel to be a star? It's never going to last. Let's just enjoy it while we can. sleeping arrangements get out. All of this is gone. I just hope you realise you're choosing a life of being alone forever. Don't you want to just sing without this ridiculous paraphernalia? People don't pay to see Reg White. They pay to see Elton John. Sorry. I know. Pressure I'm under. Not really. I'll still be collecting my 20% long after you've killed yourself. Maybe I should have tried to be more ordinary. You were never ordinary. Wild West world of podcasting, there is one podcast that is authentic and genuine and continues to stand tall in its originality. Based on a passion for his guests, their work, and his love of podcasting, Derek Thomas and Monday Morning Critic Podcast get amazing, diverse, unique guests found nowhere else. The variety and quality are endless. There is something for everyone. Derek Thomas is the hero you deserve. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector. Welcome to Monday Morning Critic Podcast. Here is Derek Thomas. Matthew Margerson is an immensely talented composer whose filmography includes Rocket Man, Eddie the Eagle, and Kingsman, which opens on December 22nd. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Derek. It's a pleasure. So, okay, I'm putting some pieces together here. Um, I know the answer to this, but I'm just curious to, to get yours. So, <laughs> Do I? <laughs> being in a 10-piece funk band sounds pretty amazing. Uh, sleeping on the floors of Motel 6 does not. Eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and ramen does not. But the worst part of this, I think, is is you were sponsored by Jagermeister. Uh, that might be the worst thing about it because I got to tell you, I'm a tequila guy. I don't think I could drink Jaeger if somebody gave it to me for free. I, I just, you know, because that was the early part of your life. And, and boy, does that does that kind of pop off the page. Wow, I the, you're bringing back memories now. I mean, certain doors we don't open again, you know. <laughs> they should be closed for life. No, yeah, um, no. If I if I uh, if I'm in the same room with Jägermeister uh, at this point in my life, uh, there's a there's a pretty high percentage of chance that I might that I might get sick at, at some point in the evening. <laughs> but what an interesting, you know, way to you know, your life is just. You have these wonderful, wonderful moments, and that's just kind. Of, and I'm skipping ahead because I like to go chronologically in order because I otherwise I'll just get confused. So, so how long do you spend in, in Brick Township, New Jersey, Matt? Oh man, well, I I was born I was born there, um, and I grew. Let's see, I I lived in Brick until I was I guess 17 when I went I went and moved up to Boston for for university for college. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you went to Berkeley, which is great because I went to Northeastern. We weren't there at the same All time. Right. Yeah, so um, Boston's just one of the greatest cities on the planet, right? It's fantastic. It's a you know I, we, my wife and I talk about it every year because she also went to school there, and it was it, it's such a valuable. It, it was in our lives at such a valuable, impressionable time, and it's such an amazing city. Um, 
you have all the seasons, you have so many schools. So the energy there is just young and vibrant. And, um, it's such a, a culturally, culturally rich school, relatively speaking. And, um, you know, you can walk across the whole city in about three hours. It's, 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 it's a, it's a sin that I don't get back there more often. Yeah. And I don't know what the square radius is, Matt, but I got to tell you, if you take the, the best schools on the planet, just per whatever the square mileage is, it's pretty impressive what's there, right? It's amazing. I mean, I mean, I, I'm making up a statistic now. I didn't know it at one point, but I mean, you know, in the in the in Boston city proper, I mean, there's there's hundreds of universities. When you take into consideration these little trade schools of like you know makeup or fine art or something like this, where they maybe only accept a handful of students every year, there's literally hundreds of schools within a couple square mile radiuses. It's 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 amazing. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, how'd you like Berkeley? Did you find Berkeley because you've done some pretty amazing things? Was Berkeley a key component in that, Matt? Yeah, Berkeley was absolutely a key component. As far as the 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 problem it's not a problem but the 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 thing to get the the hurdle i guess it would be called in in universities something like berkeley is the film music industry and the technology it changes every day so it's it's tough for a curriculum to kind of keep up with how things are changing you know so when i was studying things at berkeley you know a, a year after i spent a year living in kind of outside of Boston after I was finished with school, figuring out where I was going to go and what I was going to do. And by the time I got out to Los Angeles, the, you know, the methods of film scoring and the kind of like, um, I say the methodology of it and the, that that's never going to change, but the, the technology and the kind of practical nature of how things are done. I mean, every six months things are changing and new software is being released. So, um, but but I digress. But what I really got out of Berkeley was um, the way the curriculum is structured is you have some of these classes, you know, in a normal university, you might take like four or five classes in a year or in a semester. But with Berkeley, some of these classes, um, instead of being, say, three or four credits or units worth are like half of a credit. Um, and so and, and it would be, say, you know, the studies of um, Afro-Cuban percussion or studies of um, of reggae bass lines or whatever it may be. And there, so you can really load up on all all of these different genres and kind of angles of looking at music and really immerse yourself in, you just dip yourself in music. It's, you know, it's, it's full on concentrated uh, musical studies. It's, it was amazing. Yeah. And listening to you talk, you know, in the music composition part, that makes sense to me because that part I don't think will ever change, but it's almost like as a composer, Matt, you have to follow it up. We don't have to, but it would make sense to follow it up with a, some type of computer or some type of, um, follow through, right? Because you think things are changing all the time, technology and so forth. So would it make sense for somebody going through a program like that starting off now to back up a, say, a music composition major with, some type of computer major is does that make sense or is that well it's it's not it's not to say that the 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 curriculum for the film scoring major definitely had a huge focus on the technical components of doing this so they were they i mean you were taught sequencing and how to use samplers and how to how to dive into midi but but the point being is that no matter what you know you you can't just say well i have this degree now so i know it and i'm educated you know you have to expect that in in three months time, six months time, 18 months time, like just the, the, because computers get more powerful and more efficient and, um, you know, processing power gets just, it exponentially just starts increasing. So you have to just, you really just have to stay on the ball. If you're, if you're going to use technology to kind of do your job there, are, I mean, as we all know, people like John Williams, or I know Silvestri too, still like, you know, they sit there with pen and paper and sketch things out and, mm. If that's, you know, there's a lot of different ways to the end result and using a sequencer and kind of using the computer technology is, is just one way of, of, of getting there. That's well said. You know, um, it, it's so you're a classical pianist at a very young age. Is that part of it correct? Yeah. I th- when I when I was growing, I started taking piano lessons quite early. I started pay- taking piano lessons when I was, f- I guess, just just south of five years old. And um and, uh, you know, learned traditional organ. I started playing the organ first just because it's what we had at the house. Uh, and so I learned how to read organ music and then how to read piano music. And kind of the the, the, the stuff that I was studying in my youth was the, was the kind of traditional – um, repertoire that you would you're playing Mozart, you're playing Haydn, you're playing you know the the piano studies and um and it, w- it was when I got into college really that I was introduced to jazz and just playing a bit more on a like a modern spin on playing piano and so but you know it was really valuable to have that the repertoire stuff because you'd have a really good foundation of just harmony and how theory works um 
and so it like I said, it was a, it was a good building block to kind of get exposed to more things after I had already kind of had that solidified. Uh, I'm getting jealous to you talk because I so badly wanted to play the piano when I was younger, but I had this, right. when I was eight, I had this teacher Bruce who apparently I was like the. Uh, if you ever seen the movie Whiplash, this is what it was oh, yeah. like. But I'm like, oh my god, yeah, I'm trying to play. I'm like, I just want to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Just help me. And he was like right. yelling at me. So it's like, I don't want to do this, but I, I forever regret that. But let me ask you, as somebody who, and this is a, I don't like making interviews about me. This is the only question I'll ever ask you about me. So I do want to get back into like keyboarding, just kind of like a, because mm. I get so jealous, Matt, when I'm watching Instagram and I see somebody hop onto a piano and play like interstellar. I'm like, son of a B. I wish I could right. do that, you know? <clears throat> so could I get a keyboard and start at the age of almost 50 or is it? Oh, of course you could. I mean, anyone could the, the, the problem, the problem, the, the hurdle you'll have is that as, as adults or even as like, you know, people in their late teens and early twenties, we know what the stuff is supposed to sound like. And so when we start to sit down and try to play it and we play it wrong, we immediately get frustrated, you know, cause we know what the end result is meant to, meant to be. Um, but when you're four, when you're five, when you're six, when you're seven, you kind of don't care what you, 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 you know what it's supposed to be, but like you just have this kind of self forgiving, even if you use some notes drop on the floor and it's just easier to push through the learning stages of it because it's less frustrating because like I said, when you're an adult, you're really just focused on like, well, why don't I sound like him the first time I'm playing this? If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. And I can't bring up the piano and, and, and talking to a really gifted composer and not talk about uh, Thomas Newman is, it, it, nice. you know, I go back and forth, Matt, because between him and Hans, I mean, I I don't think there's, there's two guys that just everything they touch is like gold. Everything. Yeah. It's, yeah. And, and two, I don't want to say drastically different styles, but you know, when Hans does a score, he kicks down the door and basically announces he's here. And Thomas has a little more of an elegant way of doing that, but they're both just so beautiful. Um, And and as a pianist, do you, do you take an appreciation? It's probably a stupid question, but take an appreciation in Thomas Newman. Oh, absolutely. The thing, the thing that I love about Thomas Newman is, is that he can do very little with music sometimes. And you just still know it's Thomas, it's Thomas Newman. He has a way of, of orchestrating and voicing things out. And it could be, a scene where it's completely under dialogue, for example, where you where you don't want to get in the way and you just want to kind of slight, you know, lightly comment on what they're talking about. And you still can tell that it's Newman and it's that it's just got this it's got this Newmanism, for lack of a better word. And and it's the same thing with Zimmer. If Zimmer is doing something like Dune or if he's doing something like The Holiday or as good as it gets where it's a bit of a, of a lighter comedy – it has a Zimmerism about it, you know, and that's um, I think that's a compliment that these guys have have really they know their voice no matter what they're doing. If it's an action, if it's a comedy, if, if it's Zimmer doing the ring, some sort of like, hmm. um, you know, more elegant, romantic horror film, um, it still it still sounds like Hans, which is which is I hope that I hope Hans would take that as a compliment, you know. Absolutely. And, you know, and we're going to get to Hans in a little bit, but I wanted to talk to you um you know, you relocate to LA in, in 2003. Was that a tough transition for you? No, it wasn't. It was, um, it was an adventure, man. Um, I had graduated from school. I was still playing with the 10 piece funk band. We, we eventually had it, we broke up and, um, just needed to take a break and everyone kind of start doing, started doing their own thing. And I stayed in Massachusetts after school kind of thinking, Oh man, I have this music degree. Like what the hell am I going to do now? Like what does, what does one do with this and where do they do it? And, um, and waited tables for, for a couple months, just figuring out what I was going to do. And then, um, um, and then eventually I was like, well, let's just ask ourselves the questions, you know, like where, why, when, who, and how. And it was like, well, at that time, and I still to some, to some degree, but maybe not as much. It's like at that time you have to go to like New York, London, or LA, you know, mm. um, for, for film music, if, if that's where we wanted to kind of dive into. And so I kind of, um, the girl I was dating at the time and who's, who's now my, my missus, um, you know, we, we hopped in my car at the time and packed as much as we could. And we just started, <clears throat> started driving West. Um, when we left, when we left the East coast, we actually didn't even have a place lined up to, to stay when we got to LA and, uh, through, and you know, the, no one had kind of smartphones at the time. So we were just kind of like, I mean, we had like, a, um, 
uh, were they called Rand McMally, McNally, these massive maps that you would buy at a gas station, you know? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. We made our way to California and I, I remember about a half, halfway through our drive across the country, we had, we had a, another friend that was going to move to LA around the same time that we knew from the East coast. And, um, you know, she had called us when we were about halfway through the country and said that, that the apartment that she had planned on moving. So, so she had, she had made a last minute cancellation where she wasn't going to move to LA. And she called us saying that she had already gave, given a deposit on an, on an apartment in LA. And she said, if you want to just give me the money for the deposit, you can, you can be me and you, and you can, you know, you have a place to stay then. So it was, it wasn't until about three or four days before we landed in Los Angeles that we secured ourselves this little one bedroom apartment to, to, to live in when we landed, which was, you know, luck and um, yeah, just beautiful luck. Oh, that's great. You know, and I'm just going to bounce around a little bit before I get into your wonderful yeah. filmography that I adore. Um, people that love movie scores are kind of any uh, like people like me. I listen to when I run or in the car. They're a unique bunch, right? Because yeah. they can be drawn to your work because they love the movie. Then they're like, holy cow, Matt's work is pretty amazing. So they kind of follow you through that. So I feel like there's a couple avenues where people that listen to movie scores. I just think they're just a very unique bunch of people, right? They're just appreciative of movies. They're appreciative of music. It's kind of the best of both worlds to be a composer that people really love. I mean, is that kind of an overly optimistic way of looking at things, Matt? Yeah. I mean, I think people are people, man. I mean, you, people just people, some people are into cars. Uh, to me, a car is something that I can sit in that will get to point A or point B. And I have, I have so many friends that are well into like, Oh, this engine and that year of this bends. And, and it's, I, I wish I were into it cause I'd have something to add to the conversation, but it just doesn't tickle my fancy at all, you right, know? Right. And so, you know, some people watch a movie and you talk about the music and they, and they, and they think you're talking about the songs that might be in the music, the needle drops. And then some people do notice the score and I'm glad there are those people that are there and, and they say, Oh, you know, that added something to the, to the film. And then, you know, even, even more on a, on a niche level, you have those people that like, like you're saying, like they notice the score and they're like, Oh, Hey, let, who is that and what's what's happening and that what else have they done and they might do a little recon that way so you know i'm glad there are those people there it is a very special um eclectic group of people that really get into film score but it's great and then you know you go to sometimes you go to these conferences or panels or comic-con and you can really feel the love from these people that um that do appreciate it and, and dive in to listen oh yeah it's it's very real um you know so, so let me ask you about this um you know, Hans Zimmer's remote control productions. It's like, you know, in my limited intellect, right? I'm, I'm picturing my head like a Harry Potter, like Wizards Academy. I'm picturing right. like where the X-Men live. Like, I'm like, this is like where the best, and, and it's, there's some truth to this. There's a lot of truth to this, but it's like in my limited capacity, I'm like, this is where, but, and you, to your credit, you were there, you're there as an intern. I think it was with, um, Klaus Bedell. Do I have that right? Yeah, I when I when I first started working at Remote, it was for Klaus Bedell, and I did that for I don't know maybe a year and a half, two years, um, and he ended up um, ending his tenure at Remote while I was working for him, and we moved out into a different studio space. But I really, I really missed. I, I started working at his out of his new creative space for a couple months, and I really just really missed the um, the creative nature of having all those musicians and composers around remote control. You know, I mean, at any point, if you just went out to the car parking lot, there's just at least four or five people standing around, you know, taking a break or having a cigarette, or you can just kind of like start bantering with them and kind of, there's just a, a nice energy there at, at all hours of the day and night. So, uh, so after I left with, I, I, I was working with Klaus and I kind of said, you know, I'm going to go back to remote and see who, who needs some help there. Cause I really wanted to be in that environment. And luckily, um, Jim Dooley, uh, needed an, an assistant. So I started working with Jim and, uh, and Jim, I think just saw me as more of a creative in a creative light than Klaus did. Whereas like I had become really, really good at being Klaus's technical assistant. Um, and as soon as I started working for Jim, you know, a couple months down the road, he started kind of mentoring me in more of a creative, uh, way and letting me get some, some time behind the sequencer, just kind of doing some programming and practicing that way. Which is where you want it to be, right? I mean, that's that's which, yeah, that's the ultimate goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, do you have any moments with Hans in, in your time there? Do you have a time where you just sit with him or just shoot the, you know, like you're talking with people in the parking lot sometimes? Do you ever have that kind of moment with Hans? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Hans, um, the beautiful. The, there was a really nice time. Um, uh, like a, a period of time because when I was working for Jim, Jim would usually kind of come in in the morning, 
Um, and he would work till dinner time till maybe or even past dinner, you know, eight, nine, 10 o'clock at night. And then he would leave for the night. And then I would, I would start, I would kind of start finishing what he was doing or start working on a little bit of my own stuff on his rig, or he would assign me maybe a short, you know, 30 second cue to do. Um, and, and I would be working, you know, I would stay there until, you know, sometimes two, three, four in the morning to write. And that's the time Hans is kind of you know, roaming down the hallways, procrastinating. And so if he hears something in someone's room, he might, he, he could very well pop in and just come in and sit down and listen to what you're doing or just start having a chat with you about, Oh, I remember this time when we were doing, um, the fan or whatever it was. And then you start listening, you open up YouTube and chill there with him and, and, and start listening to music. And it's just, those are the, sto- I mean, you know, the guy's going to be written about, you know? Mm. Um, so those are such valuable experiences. Um, and then, of course, you know, I worked with Hans uh, quite closely on a couple of films where um, where I was working actually in, in his room with his rig. I went to London with him as to, to work on Sherlock Holmes, uh, the second one over there. And, and we and we and we I mean, we shared Hans and I shared. I say we shared a rig. I shared his writing rig with him um, on, on Sherlock. I, I was I'm a morning person. And so we had the schedule where I would kind of, you know, get in at five thirty, six o'clock in the morning and do some work. And then he'd kind of you know, wake up and, and, and take over, kick me out at about noon or so. And he, and then I might, I may pop in for an hour if he was going out for dinner or something, and then he would continue to write into the night. And so it's, yeah, Hans and I, uh, you know, not as, not as close on the day to day as we used to be, but we've, we've been through the ringer together. Yeah. And completely unfair question here. Completely. Um, mm. is there one, I mean, he's done so much, even the stuff you don't think he does, he's is impressive, right? So, oh, yeah. so is there one, soundtrack from a movie from that he's done and this is such an unfair question let me preface that again sure that that you're partial to that that you're like that is just i mean and you could say it legitimately about 25 to 50 of his his work yeah. like, is there one that stands out for you personally like that you just absolutely love for me personally i'll i'll say i'll i'm gonna give you two okay is that fair, fair is that, is that fair. Happy? absolutely yeah. okay so i will say i i absolutely have a special spot in my heart for the prince of egypt Mm. Um, and I think that's because that was, that was, I mean, obviously there's the early John William or early in my life, John Williams things where you're like, Oh, ET, Indiana Jones, Star Wars. These are, these are why we really fell in love with, with films and film scores, the Spielberg, the John Williams, that recipe just kind of pins us to movies. Um, but I think when I, when I heard Prince of Egypt was one that I just really became attached to all the melodies from, and I really thought it, it was something really special. And I think it was at a time in my life too, when I was, I think that movie came out in what, maybe 97 or 98. Sounds about right. Yep. When I was, um, when I was just starting to take seriously the idea of going up to Berkeley and, and studying film music. And it was, it was, it was just that it was one of the things to say, this is what I want to do. You know, these melodies are what I want to kind of like struggle to create. And, um, so I, yeah, Prince of Egypt definitely has a special spot. And then as far, uh, as far as not making it like romantically cheesy about, Oh, the Prince of Egypt. I, I just think that the, his, his score to the, to Da Vinci code, the first one is as a whole, I just think it's just, uh, it's just some pretty, great serious music like you could listen to it on its own and it doesn't necessarily say oh it needs the scene attached to it to work it's just a brilliant through composed symphony you know Mm, Uh, yeah those are great and and, you know who um those are sneaky good ones that you mentioned, which I love. Another sneaky good one that he did was was like Days of Thunder. Like you'd never oh, think of, of it. Course. When you listen to it, it's like, Jesus, this is phenomenal. Like, and it's, yeah. we haven't even gotten to the other ones, but a quick, my last thing about Hans. Um, so I'm running through the woods yesterday, Matt, and I'm mm. listening to Dunkirk, the last uh-huh. three. It's uh, the Oil, uh, Variation 15, and End Titles. And I have to tell you, um, I almost embarrassed to say that I don't think I appreciated this score as much as I should have. I had to stop for a second because I could not believe how good and I and I've li- watched this movie tons of times. I've listened to this score tons of times. I, it finally hit me how great this was. I mean, I can't believe it took me that long to realize this is just magical. Like for lack right. of a better word, it's like I could I can't believe what I'm listening to now. I can't believe it. 
Yeah, well, I'm I'm embarrassed to say that I need to give Dunkirk another listen. Um, Dunkirk, I mean, it, again, if you were to play me 15 seconds of Dunkirk, one would go, yes, that's that's obviously a Hans Zimmer score. It has just that Zimmer je ne sais quoi on it, you know. Um, but Dunkirk is probably, and I'm a huge fan of Christopher Nolan, but Dunkirk's probably my least favorite Christopher Nolan film. It's very slow pace, very slow. Yeah, and I think slow. that's and I think that's why the music I think I, I kind of was affected by it, right? Because it's Hans has to follow along a little bit. You know what I'm saying? He totally does. And what they tried to do, what they, well, what they accomplished with that, what they tried to do with that, I mean, it's not an extremely, and again, I may be, I may be wrong on this without giving it another listen, but it's not Dunkirk, the soundtrack. It's not something I'm going to necessarily put in on while I'm driving. I mean, the, most of the time, anytime I'm sitting down to listen to music now is when I'm on the road, you know? Gotcha. Um, and so it, it's not, it, to me, Dunkirk wouldn't be my first choice for like a road trip. Listen, um, not the most melodic unless there's some things that, I mean, it's very, very effective in the film, but yeah, I mean, maybe I need to, I need to give it, give it another listen D- divisively. It's, it's, to create um, all the tension that it did using all the, the, the tempo devices and the, the kind of, uh, what did they, did they call it? The, um, Oh, there's a, um, there's a device where a sine wave keeps rising and rising and rising infinitely. And he, uh, and he did this thing with rhythm where the whole entire movie keeps feeling like it's getting faster and faster yes, and faster. Yes, yes, yes. And it's su- it's super effective, um, you know, but but like I said, I need to give it another listen to, to kind of remind myself of the melodic content that's in it. Yeah, the oil and Variation 15, I think you love. Let me ask you a quick question about this. So mm. Variation 15, when I look at the track, I'm like, who, you know, I know Hans did it, but it also – uh, lists a very legendary ben- Benjamin Walfish, who's really a great composer, right? Um, and, and Edward Elgar, which I believe he, I believe he's an old school guy. Um, why would it list those two names on Hans's score? Does that mean that Ben contributed to that piece? Yeah. What I, th- if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, I'm testing my memory here because it is, it is a variation on an Elgar piece of music. Um, and it's the same type thing where, you know, when I was working on, um, Sherlock Holmes two game of shadows with Hans, there was this big opera set piece in the middle of the film, um, based on Don Giovanni by Wolfgang Mozart. And, um, and I came out to London with Hans to kind of my first assignment was to take that piece into kind of the original score, the original Mozart score to Don Giovanni. And we wanted to kind of Zimmerize it. We, we wanted to, to, to make it sound like what would it, what would it happen if we took, if, if Zimmer did an arrangement of this piece and that's, and, 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 and so Hans and I worked on that together for, for a couple of weeks. And, and um, I think it's probably the same thing where, where Ben and Zimmer kind of took this Elgar piece and um and and butchered it in a way that was the right thing to do for the film mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um that that's what my guess would be without having having been in the room or having worked on that film gotcha gotcha and so do when you like when you when you compose do scores ever reflect the personality of the director right because you've done stuff with tim burton oh absolutely we're gonna get to matthew vaughn so i imagine those two are just drastically different in how they the process is yeah exactly yeah they're very very different um i i've done a, a number of films i've done between you know kind of being in the wings and ghostwriting on a couple of henry jackman's films with matthew which is how i was introduced to matthew vaughn mm-hmm. and doing a couple of my own films with him he definitely I've, I've kind of learned what he wants most of the time i mean it's still not easy it's still you know but you kind of learn the devices to use and the the sounds and the harmonies and what the melodies should do in their films. Now, Tim, you know, I've only had the opportunity to work with Tim once. And so, um, you know, at the beginning, it was a little bit at the beginning of that process. It was a little tricky in figuring out what Tim wanted and what, and, and, and just as importantly, what Tim didn't want. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, so I definitely think that personalities of directors, uh, definitely shine through uh in in the music you know matthew vaughn's not necessarily he doesn't want things to sound too much like animation or too whimsical for lack of a better word that's one thing that dom and i um because dom is a, a dom lewis is a, a brilliant 
animation um, composer. Brilliant. And so, you know, traditionally you use a lot of woodwinds and a lot of strings. And, it, and, you, and if you're doing something that's for kids, it can be, it's very light sound. It's very light sounding, you know? And so, you know, we, we, we had to find a balance when working with Matthew together on how much, how much of these woods can we get away with? What's the ornamentation level that we can get away with before Matthew starts sounding? No, no, no. It sounds like a bit too much like animation. Let's get back in our lane, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And can, can a wonderfully scored piece of music get lost in a project that's not so well received, Matt? I think so. You know, I, I, I think that, you know, um, it take me testing the memory a little bit, but there's absolutely films out there that have scores that the films don't deserve. If that's, if that's, yeah. if that's what you mean. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And one of the things I love about your life, your filmography for sure, is that, you know, if you get a job once, obviously you're psyched, right? You're, you're doing a project mm. for this director or that director, but I feel like the bigger accomplishment and the, the, bigger impact is getting asked a second time by a director. Right. And that's happened a few times in your, in your career here. And I, I believe that's almost more impactful than the, than getting asked once. Does that make sense at all? Like, it's, I feel like, like uh, we yeah. love your work. Come back. Let's do it again. You know, it's, it's very, very interesting because not a lot of people think of that. And that's something that, um, that, you know, the agencies that represent us take very seriously because, um, they know who, you know, they try to look at who the successful directors are that are going to be making a lot of things. And, you know, we want to get relationships with those guys and gals and, um, you know, it's something, you know, Matthew Vaughn, for instance, is a very, um, introverted is the wrong word, but he keeps, he keeps his kind of inner circle of trust very, very small and very close to him. And so, you know, for, I, I think it was, um, one of the first films I worked with him on that I was doing a lot of the, the most of the minutes myself for, we didn't even have, we didn't even have really that much communication, him and I, it was more secondhand through the music editor and maybe through Henry Jackman, who he had, who had, who Matthew had worked with before. And it wasn't until like maybe my second, my second or my second probably film with him that we started a dialogue. And then, um, naturally that grew once he, we, we kind of felt each other out and learned each other and he slowly let me into the inner circle. Um, so yeah, it is, it is nice to have, to be asked back. Uh, it's reassuring that they didn't hate what you did, <laughs> what you did the first time. Um, and it's also nice because, you know, on each, on each film, um, you know, you're, you're short, you, you understand each other a little bit better and you can say, Oh yeah, remember this thing that we did on the previous film? Um, or they can, they can say some sort of anecdote non-musically and I'll know how to interpret that because we've kind of been down that road before. Yeah. That's so well said, you know, is recording at Abbey road surreal? It is, but the two, the two London, I mean, it's, it's a different experience than, um, than LA. Both are, both are surreal when you have, when you have a room with, you know, 60 to 80 musicians that are at the very, very top of their field. It's just, it's the best part of the process. Um, going to London and being at Abbey road is, it's just kind of, um, it's just slightly different because you're kind of thinking if the, if the walls could talk, you know, like these, these walls have seen everything from star Wars to Ben Hur to gladiator to, I mean, just the, the most incredible recordings that are just going to never be forgotten and to kind of have the opportunity to record some of the same players even there, um, is, 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 is pretty cool. Yeah. That's, that's it, it, it. You know, before last question, before I dive into this great filmography you have, um, what's something only a composer, what's something a composer, one thing that a composer would know that those of us on the outside would not realize, like what's a, what's something that you deal with maybe daily or weekly that, you know, we would never be privy to or understand, or is it the grind? Is it, you know, the hours you put in? Is it, what, what is it, Matt? Yeah. Well, oh, you know, what's really interesting and it's, it's very topical is, um, have you watched get back? This, oh, um, uh, the Aretha this, Franklin this documentary. Oh no, no. Get back no, is the, the one with the, the Peter Jackson. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. The Peter, the Peter, it's, it's like eight hours, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you have seen some of it. Or, yes. Or, I had John Lennon's amazing. Yeah, the whole thought, I mean, the whole thing is just a case study in the creative process because when I watch that film, you can't, it, you see how much they're just messing about. Yeah. But it's, but it's all part of the process, you know? Um, I had a dear friend of mine, uh, who watched it said, well, they're just messing around the whole time. Like, do you do that when, when, when you're writing? And I, and I was like, yeah, like that's, that's part of, you can't just sit down. I mean, you can't just think, sit down and turn on the light switch and say, okay, 
I'm going to start writing and I need to get done with three minutes today. You know, there's a little bit of procrastination and then there's a little bit of like messing around with sounds and you're playing around and you're tweaking some sort of EQ or some sort of reverb. And then you might just start over or you might pick a piano up and, and start, Oh, what happens if I switch? What happens if I make this a bit, you know, what if I put a delay, you know, you're just messing around with these things. And all of a sudden there might be some sort of, bud or seed of an idea that starts brewing but it might take four hours and so you know the the mate that i was talking about he's just like oh i just i i I could how do you mess around for that long i just i don't have the time to waste like that and it's like well that's not a waste of time right that's part of the whole process you know and i i kind of equate it to um Sometimes to baking, you know, there's all these, I think cooking and writing music are, have a lot of really similar components and you can't just, you can't, if you want to get something done faster, you can't just turn up the oven and, and say, <laughs> well, well, bake, it's going to be done in half the time because we're doing it at now 500 instead of 250. Yeah. It's all, it's all part of this, of this process that it needs to go through, you know? Um, so yeah, so that is, that is sometimes, you know, and you can say the same thing about, you know, top 40 stuff that you're hearing on the radio. And it's like these people just didn't go into a studio and 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 write the Grammy winning record of the year. It probably took many people and many trials and many things that they threw out and or maybe they were sitting with some lyrics for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then finally they had to come to terms and say that first verse doesn't work. Let's try something else, you know, and kind of leave the egos by the door and let it go through its its own lifespan and process to become what it will eventually become. Yes, yes, well said. You know, and I want to talk about a TV project with you here before we get um, into your two or three of your movie um, um, entries in your filmography. Uh, how do you like working on Pam and Tommy? I met Sebastian Stan in Seattle, two thousand nineteen. Um, how did you like? How do you like working on a, on a TV related project, Matt? Um, well, yeah, definitely different. So my my career so far has been mostly based in films. Gotcha. So yep. I get to you know the the and that has its own. Um, you know, the tenure of that is normally you're on a film for three or four months, sometimes a lot quicker if it's, for instance, like a save job or for whatever the reason you just have left less time. And something like um, Kingsman, for example, when we're nearly done and then a pan, uh, an international pandemic sets in, we actually have more time to meddle around. But for the most part, you know, with films, you work on them for a couple months and you're kind of you're kind of finished and you put it in the, in the books and wait for it to come out. Um, and you know, this year for the first time or in the past year and a half, I I was able to get to do two television shows. One, the limited series, which is Pam and Tommy, which is eight episodes, Mm -hmm. which is a nice entrance into, okay, we've done this thing, which, okay, we has a beginning, middle and end, and then we're finished. And Oh wait, that's just one episode. Now we have eight more of them to do. (laughs) Um, so, and then there's another television show, which is, you know, a half hour, um, non-limited. So it's 25 episodes. I'm in the middle of season one, season two will start next year. So that's a, that's a, it's a different part of the brain, you know, it's an ongoing process. Um, and it's 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 a little bit more of a it's a slog in a different way you know it's like you finish like i said an episode and you're done but oh i have to do this every every two weeks do an episode for the next like two years yeah <laughs> which is which is daunting but it's nice to, it's nice to have um you know the the momentum behind a show that you know the studio is like yeah we're gonna get at, at least two seasons of this yeah that's 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 well said and you know i, I want to talk about two of your more underrated projects one of which is eddie the eagle um, so underrated, so such a great piece, Matt. Um, oh, thank you so much, man. That definitely the most fun I've ever had working on anything was was Eddie the Eagle. You know, I mentioned Woods running music earlier with Hans. I'm going to tell right. you, you have a couple. You have a, more than a couple, but my fi- maybe my favorite piece by you is Eddie jumps the 90 uh, meters where it bleeds into the Van Halen jump. What a right. great, what a great unique. I don't think I've, and I feel like in a few circumstances in your, I mean, I know it's not all you. I know there's other people involved, mixers and all that other stuff. But the way you kind of approach scoring in some of these different movies, we're going to get to Kingsman in a moment. But like, it's just so unique, and I love how oh, that you. all. I love how that all played out. Like it's such a pivotal moment. It goes from this beautiful score to like, I mean, granted, it's just the instrumental part of of, of Jump, but it works right. so well together, right? Yeah, no, it was good. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, we we knew we knew that Jump was going to be the song 
that when he landed and when uh, when Eddie the Eagle and Taron Edgerton and Hugh Jackman come out and kind of have their big emotional hug after he lands the 90 meter, we knew that Jump was going to be the, the music that they licensed for that. So knowing that kind of solves a couple questions. It solves, okay, well, what tempo are we going to be in? What key are we going to be in? We need this to sound like one piece that, you know, one that segues right into the other. So a couple of those more kind of objective technical questions are, are answered for you already, which which um which helps a lot cuz cuz to me having a pace and having a tonal center are two of the first questions you have to ask yourself you know mm. um so yeah and I, and i it's funny that piece um it's a little easter egg is that there's a in the in the movie version when when Eddie actually jumps when he goes down the the ramp and and jumps we put in a choir in um in the music, like just basically reinforcing the chords that are going on. Mm. And I didn't want to use choir. I hated using the choir there. I just, I, I thought it was, I thought it was one step over the line and, uh, and Matthew Vaughn loved it. And, and we kept going back and forth and I begged him not to have it in, but we, but ultimately, obviously he's the boss, he's the director and the choir went in the film when I was cutting the soundtrack, I said, you know, I'm just going to get him back by taking the choir out so we can have a version of this that exists without <laughs> the choir in there. And it was about a year. It was about a year after the movie was released and the soundtrack was released. He rings me. And I thought maybe he was ringing to talk about another film or something like this. And he he's just like, did you take the fucking choir out, man? You, I just listened to Eddie Jumps the 90. Did you take the choir out? I mean, where, why do you know? So we had a good laugh about it. But uh, I don't know if he's actually really actually mad that I took the choir out. <laughs> so so you and um, uh, Dexter Fletcher, I would imagine, have a great rapport, right? Because he brings you back for Rocket Man. And I believe that you and uh, Taryn are in the same boat when it comes to Dexter Fletcher, right? Because in different ways, he likes you both so much. He's brought you back on multiple projects, what we've talked about before. And again, got to be the ultimate compliment, right, Matt? Yeah, yeah. Dexter, um, you know, Dexter, what was, was first? Oh, yeah. Cause so first was Eddie the Eagle. And um, again, because Matthew was a producer on that film. And between the three of us, a lot of conversations about um, – at the beginning about which direction to go with score. And there was some talk about making it a a, a pretty traditional kind of sports underdog movie with more of um, like a Hoosiers or a Rudy type orchestral score. Um, And then, you know, I think it was Matthew that had this ideal. What if we, what if we relied on the setting a bit more and did some eighties music? Um, How far could we get away with that without losing any of the emotion? And, um, and so I ended up going out and getting some of these synths and I wrote, I wrote a, I had already written some tunes that everyone really liked. Uh, and so I had taken those tunes and I had basically taken about a week and wrote like a, I don't know, a 12 minute suite or so using these tunes. Uh, but just on all these, um, synthesizers instead of kind of more traditional Western orchestra. And, uh, we gave that piece to our music editor and his name is Jack Dolman. And he had basically tempt and cut basically chopped it up and, um, and tracked it into the first opening, maybe eight or 10 minutes of the film. Mm. Um, and that's what, and once we all saw it, we were just like, okay, this is the direction. It just worked. It just, it worked. And prior to that, I think they had, you know, instead of my score in the first eight or 10 minutes of the film, they had two or three different songs. And it was like, it just made it seem a lot longer and draggier because you have song that ends and it goes into another song and then it goes into another song. And instead now we had this one piece of score that was all one, one piece of music that introduced Eddie as a kid and then introduced him to his relationship with um, the Olympics and how he didn't really know what he wanted to do sport wise, but he knew he wanted that medal. And we get a little taste of his relationship with his parents. And, um, and it just, it's, it's a little overture to the whole film. Yeah. And in a movie like Eddie the Eagle, the, the score is vital to that movie. It is absolutely vital, you know? Yeah. It's hard to imagine if we had, if we had stuck to a more, traditional um you know orchestral score what 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 would have become of the movie you know like would it have had the impact that it does would it have been so kind of um warm and 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 nostalgic and who knows yeah and you know as i speak to you now there's a i I have a poster of rocket man in front of me and um again i feel like this is a very underappreciated movie and i feel like your score is underappreciated because and if i'm looking at this wrong please correct me i feel like many times in this you are blending with Elton's music. And I feel like if that's the case, how difficult that must be. And I'm kind of pissed that there's not a, 
a score version that I can purchase on iTunes, but I kind of understand why if I'm looking at this correctly. Am I looking at that correctly, Matt? A lot of your job here was to blend in your music with what Elton is doing, with what Taryn is doing. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah. We we um again, while they were shooting the film, I had written a couple tunes for for Elton in that film. I had written, you know, an Elton John, a young Elton June, a, t- a tune for the relationship with his with his father, um uh a tune for for um for him and Bernie. And, and it was like, we started and, and, and everything was loved. You know, I sent the recordings to Dexter. I sent some of these recordings to Matthew. It was like, Oh, these are great. I could totally hear it working. And then as soon as I started working to the actual footage that they had shot, it was very quickly revealed that none of this stuff worked. And we were all just like, look, we, we have these, we have this wonderful catalog of musical DNA from Elton John already. Why not just take some of these tunes that we already attached to Elton in our, in our minds, um, you know, why don't we just use these for some of the, the score and kind of adapt them to, 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 to more score like behavior than songs. And so that's what we ended up doing. And, um, and I got, I had the privilege of working very close with Giles Martin on that, who, uh, produced all of the songs for that score. Mm. And so that was, that was nice to kind of be able to work side by side with him and say, well, this is a score moment that's going to, really just deliver us to a song. So it has to sound like one thing, not, not a moment necessarily where the score stops and the song now begins. So, you know, there was a lot of back and forth of, you know, let me have, let me have your recordings of what songs you've done and let me have this, the different stems so I could have the guitars and the bass and piano and the vocals all separately. And I could kind of chop those up and use those and write and write into them in a way. And then I would, I would give him my stuff and we'd kind of like, he might mute something or add something to mine. And then I would do that to his. And we kind of went back and forth and eventually kind of, um, you know, ended up with this, what hopefully was a, uh, like a homogenous sounding musical backdrop for, uh, weaving in and out of scores and, and songs. Homogenous is a perfect word there because you really have to watch it because it really does work so beautifully, right? Because he's you're coming in and out of transit. It's just so well done. It's just too bad that I can't listen to that on I throw that on iTunes. You know what I'm saying? But I I, I guess right, I understand right. why I, I get it. But it's I, I don't think you get enough credit for what you did in that position. Oh, so. thank you. Thank yes, you. appreciate that. Um, so let's get into this 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 beautiful Kings uh, Kingsman uh, world that you've been in for a while now. Mm. Uh, there's a couple things, and I want to and when I talk about your unique style. Um, like just little things, right? Um, and, and a couple of these things are just observations, but the insane church, you know, Skinner fight scene is so original. Right. I mean, I think that's, you know, obviously a group effort, but it's just yeah. like that. It sound, let's, let's face it. The whole Kingsman is, is just batshit crazy, but it's so much goddamn fun. Like this is why you go to the movies to have this much fun, right? Cause yeah. it's, it is, it is. One of my favorite franchises on the planet. You go and you want to experience these moments. I want to watch this absolutely insane scene in a church with with Skinner playing in the background. Right? How how fantastic! Like on paper, that's got to come across as this is legitimately insane. It looks insane, but it's so much fun, right? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, honestly, I I, I would be lying if I sh- was <sighs> sitting, was to talk about how much credit I should take for Skinner because I really ha- actually ha- didn't have that much to do with that scene. Right. Um. That was. I mean, it was written into the script that that would be Matthew knew from a very early stage, and it, I think the mission was, um, how to how to make it flow, so it so it's. So it's matching the picture because it's it's a it's a it's a hack up of the the original the original Freebird. So you know the credit goes to our, our music editor had a lot to do with that um, of getting getting the stems and again chopping them up and making and looping some parts but not having the vocals and then you know all these things. So yeah, the 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 I I didn't I, what I did do on that. I remember afterwards the scene ends with Colin Firth just standing there and we we have I think a. a if it's a boys choir or it's boy, it's like, I think a boys choir with strings doing kind of a, a, a church, a church like version when the whole thing just ends, uh, of, of, of Freebird, which was kind of, it's, I love just, you know, anytime I can get involved with songs or taking existing songs and, and adapting them to scores, it's, it's a really cool challenge. Yeah. And, and before I go over the, the next couple I have here, you as a composer, right? I mean, I'm always advocating for people to watch things in the theater, right? For, for about a hundred reasons. But as a, as a composer, the music is is the asset of having it played in a theater. The way it's the sound is projected 
really, you know, it, 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 it puts your work in a position to be heard properly, not in your living room. And I get it. There's good things that happen in the living room. I'm not saying that. But in a theater, I can appreciate your music much more than I could in my living room. Am I being just too black and white on that issue? No, I think it's and – and I also think it's – well, thank you for saying that too. I appreciate people that still like the ritual of going to a theater, um, you know, especially when you have a dub engineer or a director like – you know, one of the things I love working with Matthew about is that he's never going to shy, shy away from music. You know, I mean if there's a moment that's sound effects or music and we have to pick one to be the lead vocal, he's always 100 percent of the time going to pick music. Um, so it's, it's nice to have that kind of uh, – kind of in, in encouragement and you know i there's plenty of times where i said you know i would call matthew during an action scene and say hey there's going to be a big explosion here should i just cut the music out build to this moment and then cut out and let sound effects take over and he's like no no no, just play go loud and proud i will figure out a way to either balance them or music will take over so that's always really nice um but I don't think it's just music, you know. I think cinematographers definitely, if they know something's just going streaming or people are just going to be watching it on their iPhone, they look at shots differently. Um, editors, uh, DPs, I mean, I think all these people, it's a its a really volatile, you know, not necessarily in a bad way, but has some negative connotations when, you know, I hope that the crafts are not lost because – theatrical performances are getting less in numbers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and another moment that I want to talk about and that I, I'm pretty sure you had something to do with this, <clears throat> excuse me, is, is Mark Strong singing, take me home while on a land. Oh, right. <laughs> so, so I have to say only in the Kingsman franchise, would you have a movie about British spies singing a song written by an American yeah. Uh, so, so, uh, and, and having a Scotsman perform it. Like it's just, yeah. it's the insane world of, of, of Kingsman, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We had, they recorded Mark on set for that. The recordings, I think, you know, I I hope, I hope this isn't too insulting. I think Mark would be the first one to admit that he's not the best vocalist in the world. (laughs) Um, but we, yeah, they recorded him on set. I think we had to do a couple of, you know, get him into the studio because we need a couple more better takes of this. I had done the arrangement originally of that and I think what well, there was a little story behind it was I remember the the note coming back that Matthew was just saying it was a bit too Broadway. There was a couple elements in it that were that were too over the top brought like jazz hands mm. in the in my original demo of it. Um and so that was one of the that was one of the great things about, you know, about doing a co-write is you know, when you're stuck for an idea or you're like, what is it about that? And I think it was, you know, we called Henry and Jackman and he came into my studio and we kind of listened to it and it's, and I, and the arrangement was fine. It was just that I had recorded all of these background singers kind of doing all these background vocal arrangements of take home of, of, of country road slightly behind Mark. So Mark would still be the lead vocal, but there was all these other kind of like vocals coming in and out, singing different things. And it was like, well, let's just mute them, mute them and see what happens. And then there we are. We're, 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 we're now in a better spot, you know? Um, but yeah, things like that. I, like I said, I, I love being able to kind of like chop, like butcher previous previously written songs and do my arrangements of them. And that's what I'm saying. Like I, I, I've spoken, I've spoken with many wonderful composers, but I, like you have a very unique way of blending things. I, I mean, there's probably a better term for it, but, but from layman's point of view, the way you blend things, it's just so well done, Matt. Just, it's just, it, it works. It works, which is most, most important, you know? Um, so let's talk about Kingsman. It, it comes out tomorrow, I believe. Yeah. Uh, my guy, Dominic Lewis, your guy, Dominic Lewis, who I, who I interviewed. Great guy. He, st- he said, I, Movie aside, he said that he one day he's going to make me a, a gin, and I'm going to hold him to that. Is, 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 he, is he as good as his word matter? Am I, am I should I not should I not rely on that? Are you a vegetarian or no? I am. Um, I do not eat red meat. Okay, I was gonna say if you did eat red meat, I'd say don't don't mess with Dom and Jim. Jim Dom's gin's fine, but have Dom cook you a steak. <laughs> that's that's his forte. Besides uh, writing music, is he can he can he can he knows how, he knows his way around a grill. Oh yeah, and, there, and there's a video of of his man cave that's just I'm like, are you kidding me? And I talked to him about it. I'm like, this this he's got poster. It's just uh, just very oh, yeah. envious. Um, but you know, here's a unique situation, right? You guys get along wonderfully, and Dominic made in our interview talked very much how difficult it was to score this right for for a variety of reasons, not people related, but you know just getting it right, you know dealing dealing with a virus, dealing with a lot of things, and yeah. Um, 
But you guys work so well together. And I have to say, I don't think all people, not just composers, but you have to, I don't want to say set your ego aside, but the idea. Oh, you absolutely do. Yeah. And the idea of working with a team is is something I don't think all composers, because you're a composer, I don't think all composers could do. Like, so, so that aside, you guys make one hell of a team. Yeah, no, Dom and I have worked because Dom and I kind of came up through the remote control ranks at the same time, doing doing a lot of work on the same films for different people. And so as kind of junior lieutenants for a lot of films, uh, Dom and I would always kind of banter and say, like, oh, you know, in a couple of years, like we're gonna do we let's co-write our own film because we've 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 you know, we really work well together and and just as importantly, kind of we just have a good relationship, you know. I mean, we're after working aside, you know, our families will get together and and the kids get together, and it's it, we, we're just mates, you know. So um, there was never any egos in this, and you do have to let them, you know, you do have to leave them at the door, and it, that is very difficult for creative people. You get very defensive about your work, and you know, for some people, including myself at times, it's very tough to take criticism, and you get very defensive. But you know, I trust Dom. I know Dom's work very well. Uh, we each know what our fortes are and what, and also what we, um, each struggle with and, and, and which serendipitously kind of the other person might not as much. So that works well together. And, um, yeah, it, it just, you know, it was a beautiful chance for us to kind of work together. We both moved over to London on this one. Uh, and the, the, the film itself was for, like you said, for a number of reasons, including kind of physical things like the objection or, you know, things like being 6,000 miles away from our family for mm. months at a time. Mm. Um, you know, we, it wasn't, it, we were over in London, I think maybe for 10 months altogether, but you know, we, we made this deal with Matthew that one of us would be there at all times. So for the most time, we were both there. But then I would come home for a month or so and, or Dom would or our, our families would come out to London to see us in the summer or on you know school breaks or, or this, that and the other. Um, and also then there's the nature of the beast of the movie of edits changing or um, – you know, with this one, we have this character called the Shepherd, who um, you don't really know who he is until the end of the film. So through through all through the the whole majority of the film, you're really only hearing his voice and seeing the back of his head and and not his face. So divisively, that that or, or, you know that gave. Matthew, the opportunity as as the the head filmmaker to oh if we need to change a line that's very easy because we're not looking at his mouth we're just looking at the back of this guy's head so get the actor in for for some ADR and and then you you know you do that a couple times and some of the music for that those scenes don't work anymore because the motives have changed the dialogue has changed and so you know that made things difficult because then you're kind of constantly changing things and if you you know, you start butchering up a piece of music that works um, so well in version one, and then after your fifth or sixth time revising it, it's like, well, what is is this? Is this Frankenstein piece of music now? So, what, you know, let me just select all delete and start over. So, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of. Um, it sounds you know, like there's not a ripple effect, Matt, where you, where you can't just make one little simple change. It's like, well, if you change is. this, you got to change that, right? It totally is. Or, you know, you have an action scene and it's like, well, okay, we've written the music to a four minute action scene. And then hypothetically, okay, so you get a new edit of the film and there's say 28 seconds taken out of the middle and three seconds added to a different part of the scene. Fine. That's done. We can make those changes. Um, and then that happens again. And it's like, well, now they've, they've swapped two different shots and one of the shots they made eight seconds longer. And then at the very end of the scene, they've, they've now, you know, taken half a frame off here and they've added 16 frames to this shot. And so that's the second time you've done it. But, but once you can imagine what happens once you get to the 10th time where you're getting a new cut and they're still working on this action scene. And now the musical intent that you originally had and points that you're building to, it just doesn't work anymore, you know? Mm, mm, mm. So that becomes a little bit of a technical nightmare where you actually, you know, arguably could start writing on things too early and things backfire because then, you know, the, the, the development of the music, the development of, of the builds in music or how things come down or how intensity levels work just doesn't work anymore because it's been, it's been hacked up so much. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's really well said. And, you know, Dominic was talking and, and I, and I forget the context, but you know, he was talking about when you guys were working on this, there were times where you reined him in, like where you were like, you know, you guys, I guess his point was you, you would check each other. Like, and that's the be- one of the benefits of, of co-scoring something, right? Absolutely. And, and, you know, that, that comes down to the ego thing that I was saying about, there would be times when, 
you know, I would be finished with a scene that I thought I was finished and Dom would come in and say, oh, it's great. But, you know, what if we ended on this chord instead of this one? Or what if we didn't come? What if we what if we actually ended where we want to or if we ended with a musical question mark? And you kind of have to say, you know, one person might say, well, no, screw you. It's fine. I wrote it and it's perfect. Um, but to be able to say, I trust you, you may be right. Let's explore it. And sometimes person B is correct and you're like, ah, good on you. Thanks. I owe you a beer. Um, (laughs) And sometimes you try it and you're like, nope, I was fine. Great job that we tried it. Give it its due diligence. But but what we had was fine. And luckily, Dom and I, the the true, the really unagreeable disagreements were were basically zero on this one. It's you always you always kind of came in with an open mind and and uh, and 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 kept it. Very collaborative. Um, whether it's Dominic or, or somebody else, Matt, if, if, if say another project, say you're working on some other project, right? Mm. Um, would you ever throw a piece of music at somebody with like a, like a composer like Dominic or somebody that you trust and say, hey, what do you think of this in this context? Did you Do you ever have somebody that you can um, bounce something off of? Oh, absolutely. Okay. I mean, Dom and I would do that very much. I, we, My music editor who I worked with on Eddie the Eagle and all three Kingsmen, whose name is Jack Dolman, is someone also who, even though he's not a composer per se, has a very creative musical mind. And so he's someone that I really, especially on the Matthew Vaughn films, really, because he's been working with Matthew. I mean, he's worked on Matthew with X-Men on both Kick-Asses, and he knows how Matthew's brain works. And so I could call Jack in and say, hey, what do you think of this? And again, I can trust his opinion and 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 sometimes I can say, you know, you're right. And sometimes I'll say, uh, nope, you're wrong. I don't think that's a good idea. But but I like to have a set of ears to run it by before it hits Matthews. Have you seen the final product, uh, the movie? Of The Kingsman? Yeah, everything scored, finalized. <sighs> have, have you had a chance to see uh, it? Uh, excuse me. Sorry, I just had a cough. Um, I don't know if I have, actually. I've seen cuts that were extremely close to the very final product. Gotcha. Um, and then once we were completely signed, sealed, and cause the good thing about Matthew is that when we write a piece of music and he likes it, or it's very close to being approved, we get it right into the avid. We start living with it. The temp score goes away. Um, so I have seen very, very, I don't know if I've actually seen the complete final cut with all of the color timings and the credits popped on there and everything. But, um, cause you know, they do a lot of trimming and re-editing and stuff like up till the very last moment these days. But, but I have seen very close to being completely finished. And I am so excited to see this in the theater. I am so, I am just, I, I, I've been jazzing about this for months cause I talked to Dominic a few months back and I've been holding on and holding on. So I am so excited for this. And and it's such a great thing to be working with for Matthew for such a musically driven director. Right? It's got to be like a dream. Oh, yeah. No, he he gets well involved. I mean, he though I remember on um, on kick at I know it was kick, which it was Kingsman two. We were to I forget what scene it was, but there was a scene where I had written. You know, we have this musical device called contrary motion, which you can guess what it is. We have, you know, we have some instruments going up and some instruments going down. And if they're done, you know, at the right pace or in the right key or with the right intervals, like you create different emotions. And there was there was a moment on on Kingsman 2 where I had used done something like that and Matthew picked it out and he was like, what's going on there? Explain it to me. And it's like, well, this is this thing we call contrary motion. Explain it to him. And then. On Rocket Man, I got the call. Well, why don't you try contrary motion on that on that you know cue? So he really he he loves to kind of look under the bonnet and see what's actually happening technically, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. And um, so last question, uh, last comment. I have to say two other pieces you've done that I love in this in this great series is skydiving in the finale. Just great score. This is perfectly scored music that I just absolutely gravitate to, Matt. Yeah, no, um, really, really, really fun. When you have that type of footage to, um, to score to, it just, I mean, it's, it's fun. It's a blast. It makes it, it makes it, it makes it, it doesn't make it easy, but, uh, it's better than a scene that just doesn't work. And I don't know if you could say this or not, but like, I've heard rumors like, is this, this is not the end of the franchise, right? We can keep this thing going, right? The, I mean, Talking, talking with Matthew, it's like, yeah, I think he has he has ambition to to at least to do a trilogy with um, with with Taryn and Colin and finish up that story. But who know? I mean, you know, until something's actually being worked on, I have no idea how much of a reality that that actually is. And outside of this, what's around the corner for you, my friend? Just whatever is you know, what's going on with you and your life? What do you want to throw out there? 
Yeah, we have um, well, we have Pam and Tommy being released in February. I'm super super excited about that score. It's something different for me. Um, it's not this you know driving action score. Uh, I had to I had to really kind of challenge myself to do something different, which was really really challenging, but really fun and rewarding. Um, and got to work with some really really talented filmmakers. Um, and I've started doing this animation for Disney Television. Uh, it's a a revamp of the Alice in Wonderland franchise. So it's nice. Alice. It, the show is called Alice in Wonderland's Bakery, and it is basically, um, it's like Alice. It's the original Alice's granddaughter, a great granddaughter, I believe, who now has taken over the bakery. And it's the Mad Hatter's, you know, great nephew or great grandnephew or something. So it's a couple of generations down from all the original characters, but um. But it's an amazing team to work with, and it, the show is just so. I mean, it's a show. The demographics, I would say, is probably for pe- for kids between three and seven years old. Um, but the animation is just. I work. I work when I'm working on the episodes. I work on you know the not the finished product where there's still a lot of like kind of temporary animation and the colors are not completely rendered and everything. And then every episode, I have to kind of do a pass of just. Um, of adjusting my my music to the finished product where all the and it's just beautiful man every time i get a new episode the colors and the animation and the detail it's stunning i can't get over how beautiful it looks oh that's fantastic uh i gotta tell you i, I love the <clears throat> conversation and, and you're so easy to talk to and i look forward to all your future projects matt oh man derek thank you so much for having me it's been a real pleasure to talk to you too Thank you for listening to Derek Thomas and Monday Morning Critic Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you can also connect with Monday Morning Critic on Instagram and Facebook, MDM Critic on Twitter, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are found. All episodes available, www.mmcpodcast.com. 